I want to begin my, my sharing a story briefly. A few years ago, I had a, a man contact me because he was very frantically wanting some biblical counseling. I didn't know the man. He, he got our information from another church, another pastor. He didn't, he didn't attend our church. And he set up the appointment and uh, sent in the information and reviewed it and not really sure what I was going to expect from this. And he came in and sat down and began to explain the circumstance. I wasn't prepared at all, really, for what I was to hear. He was sharing that his marriage was dissolving because for the last 20 years, he had been visiting prostitutes. He had been married 15 years with a handful of small kids. He would begin to tell me of the struggles, stemming back from his teenage years, so that he would marry young, even have a ministry, a public ministry, and yet he continued in his relationship with the world, child after child that his wife would, would bear. He would continue to visit prostitutes weekly, and he would go home as an act as if nothing was wrong. He would put on the act as a good father, loving husband, but deep down he knew he was a fraud. It came to an end when he, uh, his wife came and thought that she had contracted something and she wanted to get tested. And in that he, he frantic and fear, he came clean and admitted to her all that he'd been doing for their entire marriage. He had fallen in love with this world. He had looked to find fulfillment in this world. And the world would leave him broken, divorced, and a fraction of the man he once believed he was. His friendship wasn't with God. His friendship was with the world. And it never fulfilled him. It didn't even endure. And I wonder if there are others that maybe fit into that. Same situation looking to fill voids in their life with fake friendships that lack any depth or sincerity. When trouble comes, as we've seen in the book of James, where do we turn? Do we turn to heavenly wisdom or that wisdom from below? We do not have because we do not ask, James says. And sometimes we ask, but we don't receive because we ask wrongly, looking to fulfill our needs through the ways of the world. And James confronts this way of thinking again this morning. If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of James. We're going to look at chapter 4. If you're using a Bible in, in your seats, it's page 951. I don't want you to be embarrassed if you're not sure where it's at. James chapter 4, page 951. I want to read the first 10 verses. We looked at first verses 1 through 3 two weeks ago, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10 this morning, but I want you to see the context here. And if reading a Bible is new to you, the, the, the large number is the chapter, and then the small numbers are the verse numbers. So find James 4, and follow with me as I read, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This morning, we're going to look at two friendships in this passage. Friendship with the world, verses 4 and 5. and Friendship with God, verses 6 through 10. Everyone here this morning is either a friend of God or a friend of the world. So we're going to begin by prayer. And I ask that, you know, in my prayer that God would bring understanding of this text to you. And I'd ask that if when we pause to pray, that you would pray for me, that I would share God's word faithfully, and I'll pray for you, that you would receive God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage this morning that is a rebuke in many ways, but also a gracious invitation. Yeah, we ask that you would help your people to hear and to receive your word. God, I pray for those that are seated here that are enemies of you. That you would speak to them this morning. That you would call to them. That they would understand your word. They would receive it. And that you would use your word in saving them. And I pray that you would change us as we come before your word, as we sit under the preaching of your word that we've become more like Jesus Christ by our time here this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. First is the friendship with the world. There's a strong rebuke in this passage here, and there's a gracious invitation. His rebuke is in verse 4, the most severe of the letter. James speaks as a father to his children, warning them of this tragedy. If they continue in the rebellion, he says, he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James begins with the most striking three words in verse four, you adulterous people. James is calling these people in the church out, believers who have left their first love, these people who are in the midst of quarrels and fights in the church, these people who do not understand that their desires go deeper, these that are willing to murder others with their words. And they've committed spiritual adultery, James says. They live like the world. In the original Greek, James uses the feminine word adulteresses, but in the ESV is translated adulteress, which is in general, plural. But gender is important here to understand what this means because we, we see that the original audience, the Jewish readers, they would know of the Old Testament. And God had many things to say of Israel being un being as an unfaithful wife to him. When he calls them adulteresses, he's comparing them to Israel and their unfaithfulness to God. Remember, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. 
Craig Bloomberg writes, James personifies the church as the bride of Christ. At best, she has become distracted from and at worst, unfaithful to her groom. The audience has the wrong object for a lover, the fallen world system and values of the unregenerate. He is calling every single person in the church a wife and he's rebuking them for their unfaithfulness and their covenant with him. God uses this imagery a lot in the Bible. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. And in the book of Hosea, in the book of Hosea, Hosea marries a woman he dearly loves. Her name is Gomer. Hosea marries Gomer, and he loves her very much, but she doesn't love him back. She is utterly unfaithful, continually going off and being unfaithful to him and becoming involved in sexual relations with other men. She doesn't love Hosea. Instead, she loves herself and her wants. And God comes to Hosea. This is the basic point of the book. And says, Hosea, now you may understand what my life is like because I love a woman. I love a people who doesn't love me back. Isaiah says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God is saying, you will understand now. You will understand the tragedy of adultery. Have you ever loved someone and they didn't love you back? Now you understand. See, when you, when you are converted, when you become a Christian, you die to the thing that captured your heart before. Now you belong to another. You put yourself into Christ's arms. You belong to God. He is yours and you are his. And James is saying to us this morning, they've forsaken their lover God and have run into the arms of another lover, the world. And the evidence of adultery, James says, is this. They have friendship with the world. Now, there may be some confusion as what James is saying here. He isn't saying that we shouldn't have any friends in the world. He isn't saying that we shouldn't work in the world. He isn't saying that we shouldn't have our kids attend school in the world. Those statements would go against what Jesus has said in John 17, that we're in the world, but not of the world. So what is James getting at here? Well, a few definitions might be helpful. Friendship. First, friendship. This is defined as an inclination to help, to support, to show strong and unwavering sympathy. But even deeper, it's an affection and love. This is perhaps more strong of a definition of friendship that we're used to in normal life. We can easily say that when we meet someone and we get, to, we get along, we have some commonalities that they're our friend, when really they're just really an acquaintance. You have a familiarity with them, but, but they're not a friend. Friendship here means you are identifying with its standards and priorities. You are in support of them. You are all on board. It's a, it's a pact between people with shared values and loyalties. This is the friendship that James is talking about here. And we experience these types of friendships in our lives, different ones. And the one that really rises to the top, if you're married, is your friendship with your spouse. That perhaps is the closest friendship that you have on planet Earth with another human. Because in marriage, you open yourself up. You are the most vulnerable and most committed to someone else. And the other word here to define world, what does that mean? 
and they are friendly to the world, it means they are aligning themselves to the world's way of thinking, the world's system, their values, their beliefs, their morals. And, and this world, this way of thinking has locked God out. It wants nothing to do with God. The world mentioned here isn't the cosmos, it isn't earth, it's the people's way of thinking. It's their priorities. It's how they order their life, what's important, what's vital. And James says, you adulterous people, you have left your first love and you're now in love with the world and how the world thinks and how the world lives. And this shouldn't be. This is adultery, plain and simple. They are living and loving like the world, which betrays God and cheats on him. And if we've adopted the world's way of thinking, spiritually, we are being unfaithful to God. And we need to pause and consider this. Friends, the imagery is powerful. We tend to think of the horror of a husband or wife discovering their spouse in the arms of another person. And James says that that horrendous behavior aptly describes what Christians do when they turn their back on God to the world. If we go back into the book of James and begin to look deep within and, and understand certain things that it brings out when we're in trials, when we think wrongly about others, when we hold up people higher than others, when we show partiality, when we think that, that all we have to do is believe and never allow that belief to change our lives, when we follow the, the wisdom from below and then fight and quarrel and, and act selfish, he's saying, you're being friends of the world. We're acting like the world. We have turned our back on God. We're proud. And this is the default mode for every human being on earth. You know, the goal of the world is self-glory. The goal of the world is self-fulfillment, self-control, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction. And all of it is hostile to God. All of it is antagonistic to his word. All of it opposes his will. And so James is very direct to us. And James says in verse 4 that a, a deep affection for the world is utterly inc incompatible with loyalty to God. And in fact, he says it's, it is enmity with God. Enmity. That word enmity means personal hostility, personal hatred. It's a very strong word. It is a form of the term that could be translated enemy. These people James has in mind are hostile to God. They are enemies of God. They, they hate God in their life. Dan McCartney says, the intention to be a friend of the world makes a person an enemy of God because it puts the world in God's place. It submits to the world's ethics and values instead of God's and desires the things of the world instead of God and exalts the creature over the creator. And they felt the allure of the world's way of life. So, th so they want to live the same as the world. And, and they fight for their rights. They quarrel. They, they seek revenge. They're, they're, they're not content with their life. And they just want to show that they're real. They just want to show that they're like everyone else. And the, the world would understand. The world would then encourage this behavior in their lives. And they behave just like the world thinks. But as Christians... We cannot look at things the same way the world does. 
We have to be different, a different view, a different purpose for our lives. This world has wisdom from above, but it has a shelf life. It has limits, but as Christians, we seek to employ the wisdom from above. The, the world's way of thinking cannot mark God's people. We need to be different. And if you're here this morning, you haven't put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you might think that James is being just a little too severe to his readers. Maybe you think of the church of Christianity as just a club or an, or an activity that you attend when you're available. Maybe, maybe it's just some principles that you can get and, and take and put into your life so that things will go better. But that's not from the Bible. No, the Bible speaks of Christianity as a relationship. It's personal. It's real. It's from the inside out. It's never from the outside in. Meaning you, you, don't, you don't do a bunch of things, then maybe you'll change. That's not what the Bible teaches us. God is the one who changes you on the inside, which affects the outside. And it's an intimate relationship. That's why James uses this illustration of marriage here in verse 4. Being a Christian means we have an intimate relationship. It's a covenant with God. It's the one ultimate allegiance. It is the one ultimate commitment to follow God and follow his word above everything else in this world. And bluntly, if you have walked away from him, God just won't lay down and let it continue. Now, James says in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scriptures say he earns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If you are a Christian here this morning, if you count yourself a Christian here this morning, Shai Lin says you belong to the jealous one whose blood bought us. Whose blood bought us from the slave market of sin. God is jealous and it's not sinful. It's not a worldly jealousy that we see in the world. No, God is perfect and holy in his jealousy. This is a righteous jealousy. And it's an appropriate desire for what a person has a right to. It's a zeal to protect. God is jealous for the affections of your heart towards him as a follower of Christ. This isn't insecurity, but a secure jealousy that only wants the best. God is zealously devoted to those that are his. And he will not tolerate any rivals for his affection. He cannot live with an undivided loyalty. Excuse me, he cannot live with a divided loyalty. Exodus 25 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And the God of the Bible must be understood rightly. He deserves a full dedication from those that believe and follow him. And he's, he's not like us because most of the time human jealousy will hurt people. But when it comes to God, his jealousy is a virtue. I mean, what kind of God would he be if he wasn't bothered by idolatry? Is God just supposed to smile and have no anger when he's been replaced by a golden calf? Is a God who says he is holy supposed to just gloss over idolatry in our lives? And you say, I, I don't worship a golden calf. Yeah, you do. We worship 
self and sex and power and prestige and honor. That's our golden calf today. And it can't be this way. And when a Christian adopts the mindset of the world, they are figuratively climbing back in bed with the world. Matthew Henry, writing about this passage, says, A man may have a competent portion of the good things of this life and yet may keep himself in the love of God, but he who sets his heart upon the world, who places his happiness in it and will conform himself to it and do anything rather than lose its friendship, he is an enemy to God. It is constructive treason and rebellion against God to set the world upon his throne in our hearts. Friends, God will not tolerate this. And we need to ask, based upon even that quote from Henry, what is your happiness ultimately in? How alert are you to the seductions from this world that causes your heart to leave worshiping God and to commit spiritual adultery? To, make it, to commit treason, as Matthew Henry says. Are you chasing things right now that the world chases? In what ways in your life are you acting like a friend of the world? Are we, we thinking the, the way the world thinks regarding work or our marriage or our kids or the church or even our time commitments? We need to think deeply of these things. Are we a friend of the world? Well, James isn't done here. As I said, it's a strong rebuke. But now we really move into a gracious invitation. The second point of friendship with God. The first part of the sermon can leave you feeling raw if you've listened to what James has said. What do we do now? You know, if, if in fact we are drifting away from God into the world, what hope is there? And James says in verse 6, you need to look at it. Open your Bibles. If you haven't already, look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Those are sweet words. This is the remedy. You know, this is the recipe for all we need in life. God wants his people back. Amazingly, God would take his people back. God finds us in bed with the world, yet he still wants us back so that we would enjoy the blessing of life with him. And this grace, this, this unmerited, generous, abundant favor that God gives to his children. You know, James is such a good pastor. He knows his Savior so well. Right after rebuking him, right after rebuking him for walking away from God and teaching him about this, the jealousy of God, he moves to verse 6 and he says, but he gives more grace. Our eyes need to fall on those words, underline them. He gives more grace. Augustine said, God gives what he demands. He gives more grace. I mean, it has to be one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. I don't know about you, but we need this comfort this morning. We need to get in on this. We need to meditate on this to feel the full force of this verse. 
What a gracious and generous God we serve. And once again, James brings our minds back to the truth of the goodness of God. The, the generosity and goodness of our God that never ends. Have you forgotten about the goodness of God this week? You need this reminder. Alec Moiter writes of this verse, he says, what comfort there is in this verse. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Does this not affect you? I mean, I, I'm going to read it again because we need to have this. His resources never end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. If you're a Christian here this morning, being tempted by the world to love them, to follow them, to be pulled under, he says God gives more grace. And if you've already been seduced by the world and you know it today, you realize that you've wandered away from God and you've been laying in bed with the world, he says to you this morning, I give more grace. You can be restored. Our Puritan friend Richard Sibbs has given us something wonderful to ponder. He says this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Oh, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more grace in God than sin in us. Do you hear this? There's hope for us. There is hope for our temptations, hope for our failures. There's always more grace in Christ. And the disposition of our God is to give. That's what he's about. He's a giving God. He isn't stingy. He isn't moody. He isn't waiting for us to get our act together. He gives. And he never stops giving. God never takes a week off. He, he never forgets about you. He never just walks away. He's, he gives more grace. God's there saying, what do you need? I've got it. Ask for it. I'll give it. There's always more grace in God than sin in us. And friends, if you've fallen away, if your heart has been captured by this world and all that it has to offer, and this morning you need to turn from your friendship of the world and turn to friendship of God. And God says, I won't leave you to do it on your own. I'll give more grace. Can you tell it's impacted me this week? Oh. But he's not done in verse six. Because the only way to receive this grace, he says, is to humble yourself. He says in verse six, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you hate? I mean, if you're anything like me, you probably have a list of silly things that you hate and serious things. One silly thing that I hate is tomatoes. I hate them. 
I really do. I can't stand the texture of those slimy things in my mouth. But just so you know, if you have me over for any meal, I'll, and you put them in front of me, I'll eat them. Because I love people more than I hate tomatoes. But I'll never choose them for myself. That's silly. That's of no consequence. But seriously, I hate adultery. I hate child abuse. I hate abortion. I hate racism. Do any of those resonate with you? Even in those serious things, they don't resonate to the degree that God hates pride. God's hatred for pride is pure and holy. John Calvin wrote, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who by praising themselves obscure his glory as far as they can. God cannot bear with this arrogance. So he tells us in scripture that he opposes it actively. This is present tense here in verse 6. God actively opposes the proud. God actively resists the proud. He is against the proud. Not just pride in general, but against the proud. He opposes them. He is at war with the worldly proud. And we need to let this sink in. God opposes the proud. You perhaps know what's going to happen today at 3.30 p.m. The New England Patriots will oppose the Los Angeles Rams in a game of football. Just a side note, the word ram appears in the Bible over 200 times, and every time it's slaughtered, so. <laughs> Just saying. That's nothing to do with my point. <clears throat> but football, I mean, in any sport, they're opponents, right? They use this term. Let's switch up the opponents. It's not the Rams and Patriots. No, today, on one side of the field is you, the talented, smart, somewhat successful, the mighty, the proud. And on the other side of the field is God. James says, if you are proud, God is against you. And you have no chance against God. I mean, it's just even silly to watch. No one would turn it on. The ratings would tank. You have no hope against God. And he is the only one in the universe that you wouldn't want to be opposed to. There's never a good reason to be opposed to him. Friends, God always has your best in mind. And here James says, the proud are opposed to God. They're against him. They resist him. And this verse, this is a warning for us. God is warning us of living our lives full of pride against him and against his ways. And some of us are very proud people. We, we don't want to be told what to do or that we are doing anything wrong. Some of us have been living this way for such a long time that it's been a, a part of who we are now. 
No one can tell us otherwise. We have redefined things for ourselves. And, and for some of you, you've tried to sanctify your pride. You have hidden behind verses in the Bible to justify your pride. But God knows you. He knows your heart. And this verse says, God opposes you. So at school or at work, you choose to be liked and accepted by your peers to live like them, to think like them. And so doing, you choose to be opposed to God. And for some of you kids here this morning, I, maybe you've checked out. Come back with me right now. Look at me. Junior high, senior high, college, even younger kids, you have bought the lie from the world that you have to think like them, that you have to act like them. And you need to realize, maybe for the first time this morning, you need to understand that you are choosing to be opposed to God. And you and your pride has you on the other side of the field, and God is your opponent. And your parents have been warning you. They've been gently and lovingly warning you. And in your pride, you ignore their cries for wisdom. You ignore them. Instead, your pride has lied to you and has deceived you into thinking that this world, that those friends, those peers that you enjoy hanging around, the success that you have, the fame, the pleasure, this friendship with the world is worth being opposed to God. And you need to look up at me, okay? You need to realize you're wrong. This is a warning from God to you this morning. God opposes the proud. You know, warnings in Scripture are God's expressions of mercy to us. And we need to lean into them. We need to listen to them. We need to spend more than just a few seconds considering them. God opposes the proud. And this world, the world that is passing away, and even before it passes away, it won't be faithful to you. Your friends in the world, your peers, they won't be faithful to you. Friend, God is always faithful to you. And he will never pass away. His promises will never fail. Great is your faithfulness. You need to take the opposition of the world and keep your friendship with God, regardless of the cost. Because it will be worth it. And if you're here this morning and you have no clear understanding of what it means to be a friend of God. I have been praying for you this week. I've been praying that you would hear and heed this warning. God opposes the, the, the proud because he is perfectly holy. He opposes the faults and he knows the truth and he knows the truth about us. And you cannot hide. We are not him. We're not God. And we shouldn't act as if we are. The Bible is clear. We all sin. That means we all act as if we are gods ourselves. And we do things for our own glory, for our own comfort, because that's what we want. We want to live by our own standard, and that's sin. And because God is good and God is holy, he will judge us, every single one of us, for our sins. And he will oppose us forever. And our only hope is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. 
He lived a perfect life of truth and obedience to the Father. He was not proud. He was the model of perfect humility, so humble and loving that he would go to the cross and give his life away for everyone who would turn from their way of life, from their way of life, and trust in him. And he became a sacrifice and died in the place of us to pay for our sins on the cross, to remove this hostility that we have with God if we would trust in him alone. And God raised him from the dead, showing that he accepted the sacrifice on the cross. And he was raised for our justification. That means you can be forgiven for all of your opposition to God. For all of your envy, for all of your fighting, for all of your selfish ambition, for all of your quarreling. You can be forgiven. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. You know, this is what we have sung this morning. Did you pay attention to the songs we sang? They're on purpose. I was texting back and forth with Jason, who has helped leading this morning, and the song, Grace, Greater Than Our Sin, and he says to me, it's an overwhelming song, and I'm like, it is, brother. Because it reminds us of our Savior, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. That's marvelous, right? I mean, we can only sing this, though, because of what Christ has done. And we can sing as, as Christians and be happy and grateful because we see his grace in our lives. And for some of you here this morning, you have observed this, but it's unfamiliar to you because you've never had a friendship with God. You're opposed to him. And today, perhaps today, where you see your sin and you see your need for a savior, Jesus Christ, and you understand that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you turn from your friendship with the world and turn to friendship with God. And I'll tell you what, we would love nothing more as, as elders and pastors to sit down and show you from the scriptures how you can have this friendship with God. I want to implore you to come see us after the service. Myself and the other, the other pastors and elders will be at the door. And we want you to understand this gospel. And for those that are Christians here this morning that realize that they, they have been opposing God in some ways, they, they've drifted away, there's an answer here. In the final four verses of the section, there's an answer to this issue. If you find yourself gravitating into friendship with the world and, and recognize that you maybe have discarded God, he doesn't leave you to fend for yourself. No, in verse 6, he gives us more grace. And his answer for us is humility. And he shows us in six different ways in these verses here, from verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. So this is in your notes, but you can jot these down. We'll email these out this week, these, these six ways here in these Four verses. The first one is in verse seven. We are to submit. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. The only way to fight pride is to submit, to be subject to God, to be ready to listen to him and obey him. And we need to be tender and contrite, not proud and stiff-necked. And this is the action of placing yourself under the direction of God. And it's the most visible sign of humility. It's seen in our lives in a number of ways. As, as Christians, we submit to one another, meaning we humble ourselves. We think of others as more important than ourselves. 
but seen also by submitting ourselves to the leaders of the church because they will give an account for us. And children submitting to their parents and wives submitting to their husbands, all because this is how God designed it. And he will get the most glory from it. And the most visible sign that you're resisting pride is how you submit to others and to God. Submission to God is itself an act of resistance to the devil, which is the second command, to resist. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Nothing will cause greater upset than the devil's schemes than our willing and joyful submission to God. To resist means to oppose, to be against, to not give in to, to not do as the devil suggests. You refuse to listen. Instead, you fight back. And, and James wants us to stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. And the essence of sin is, is trusting the devil while distrusting God. And he commands this here, to resist the devil. And there's a promise when we do. He says, he will flee from you. It's, it's a cause and effect. The more we submit our lives to God, the easier it is for Satan to lose a foothold in our lives and he must flee. He has no other reason to stay. When you're tempted to go to that site on your phone or your computer, resist him. When you're tempted to speak selfishly or to really let him have it, resist him. When you're tempted to anger and discouragement or doubt or pride or worry, resist him. And God says, resist him and he will flee. He can't stay when we submit our lives to God. The third command is to draw. He says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You need to resist the devil and draw near to God. To draw near means there's a distance between us and God. And there's power in this verse, friends. God finds us in bed with the world and still wants us back. It was grace. What grace that is. How do we draw near to God? Well, we've done that this morning. If you've been paying attention, our, our service that we've entered into, that through the prayers that have been prayed, through the singing, through the giving, all of this is done with the purpose for us to draw near to God. This is what we do. And it's crucial for you to be faithful in coming. But that's corporately. How do you do this personally? How do you draw near to God personally? It's through prayer and reading the word. Do you pray? You might say, yeah, a few minutes in the morning and a few minutes throughout the day when I'm going to eat. Do you realize what that's like? It'd be like being married to somebody and doing things with a spouse, raising kids with your spouse, going to work with your spouse, but never talking, never, never just looking at the other person, never just concentrating completely to understand them, to, to love them. And if you did that, your marriage would be nothing but a facade. You know, in our relationships with other humans, isn't just information exchange either. Well, you spend time with them. You, you talk with them. You learn about them. Friends, we're to read the word, not just to check it off the list, but to learn about God, to understand how he works, what he does, how he ticks. That's what we do in our relationships. Why is it any different with God? James says that we need to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God won't stay away from you. He'll continue to draw close to you. Well, fourth, we're to cleanse. 
James says to us, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It says similarities to Psalm 73. But really, this verse has the language of repentance. If you've ever been chummy with the world and you've been polluted by the world in some way, and James is calling them to remove everything from their thoughts and their actions that show them to not single-mindedly be pursuing God and his will. This is about repentance, and notice what it involves. It involves both our hands and our heart, our actions and our attitude, our behavior and our mindset, and it always has to be this way. Repentance of attitude without change in conduct is no repentance at all. And we cannot expect to change our behavior without seriously changing our thoughts and attitudes that lie underneath it. Repentance must involve both hands and heart if it's a godly repentance. Fifth, a fifth command follows closely to the last and that we need to treat sin seriously. He says we need to mourn. Fifth, we mourn. James tells us to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This verse can sound depressing to be wretched, mourning, weeping. For those that live in friendship with the world, they tend not to see their sin as a big deal. You know, Satan has done a wonderful job in lulling people into a stupor when it comes to the seriousness of sin. And as Christians, we need to be serious about sin. Because we, the more we know of him, the more we read of him, the more horrific our sin becomes to us. Our sin is no trivial thing that God can just sweep under the rug. Our sin costs no less than the blood of Jesus. And sin is not something that God will wink at and push aside. The cross that's right behind me, that you're, you can see, right? You see the cross? You can say yes, by the way. The cross stands at the very heart of our faith as a testament to the fact that sin is deserving the very wrath of God. A wrath that God's Son was willing to bear on our behalf. A wrath whose awfulness we see when Jesus cried out in his forsakenness on the cross from the Father. Friends, we need to grieve our sin. We need to mourn when we sin. Even as he says, with, with wailing and tears. You know, there are times for joy in our lives, but when we realize that we are in sin and, and jumped in bed with the world, we need to repent. And James says it looks like this. We shouldn't just regret our sin, but we should grieve over our sin. Some of you, mostly males here, feel like you're not that emotional. But when your team loses the big game, you're upset. Or, or that file you worked on for 15 hours deleted, you might even wail. Or your, your TV show, someone dies. Or your children's achievements or disappointments, and you begin to show this type of emotion. And there's something wrong with you when you don't feel those same emotions when you brush over your sin and don't appreciate what your sin costs the Savior to rescue you. Sin is not cheap, and we should mourn over it. The last command here is to humble. 
James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James echoes his Savior's words from Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way of true exaltation is to be lifted up. Always, it always passes through the valley of humility. He says the Lord himself will exalt us. He will give us forgiveness and joy in our walk with him. He will lift us up to levels of fellowship and service that we have thought were never possible. And there's a world of difference between a person who, who lifts up himself and one whom the Lord lifts up. He says, he will exalt you. He will honor you. He won't forget you. He will give you the strength to continue in your service to him. And we need to notice, if you haven't already, that these commands of what repentance looks like, they end where they begin with a call to humility. Conflict in our church will come when we as members seek to have our own selfish ways satisfied. Humble repentance is rare, but it's the cure to the troubles that we see. We need to be known as a humble church. As we close in our time this morning, and we're going to partake as the Lord's Supper, I have a few questions I want you to jot down, so don't put your stuff away yet. A couple questions. First, have I grown in my friendship with God in the last month? Have I grown in my friendship with God the last month, or have I slowly grown more in love with the world? Have I grown in my friendship with God this last month, or have I slowly grown more in love with the world? Only you can answer this. Another quote from Dan McCarty says, it is the outright intention to be the world's friend that makes a person God's enemy. Nevertheless, intentionality often begins with a wish. And even wishing to be friends with the world is as dangerous and as stupid as a married person wishing to flirt with someone other than his or her spouse. Our love for the world always begins with a wish. A wish to be accepted. A wish to not be made fun of. You wish to be known by them and then you begin to flirt and take steps closer to the world. Let me add a, an additional question on. You recognize that you have grown more in love with this world and in what ways are you in love with this world now? Is it in your political views? Is it in your work? Is it in your home, your time? We need to think deeply about this. The last question, how can I grow in my friendship with God by intentionally and consistently drawing near to him? How are you to intentionally grow in your friendship with God? You know, the question should remind us of the cross. Why? Because only those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus are able to draw near to him. If you've never been born again, you cannot draw near to him for fellowship. You, you first must come through Jesus and his payment for you for your sins on the cross. But if you are a Christian, how can you grow in your friendship with God by intentionally and consistently drawing near to him? And really, my question is, what is your plan? Do you have a plan? I'm serious, friends. What is your plan 
to grow in your friendship with God. You have to intentionally make a plan. If, if you don't, what happens? You drift. And it happens so easily, so, so subtly. You'll drift. Now listen, friends. You don't drift near to God. Right? What does the word say? You draw near to God. You won't drift near to God. You have to draw near to God. That's part of what we're here for as leaders, is to help you in this. I said this a few weeks ago. I, I wasn't quite prepared as a pastor when I got in ministry of how much information I would get from people in the church. And so, hear me out, but I hear much more about people's medical conditions than their spiritual conditions. And just so you know, I don't, I don't have a degree in medical field. But I have been trained and I have loved to serve in the realm of the spiritual and what God is doing. And so no, I don't, don't take that as, oh, I can't share any medical needs with Jeff. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that far outweighs the needs of, Jeff, pray for me. I'm struggling to read my Bible. It's shocking to me how many share medical needs, and it should be humbling in some way, and you just share, you blurt out. Some of you struggle to just say, I need help to read my Bible. You're humbled or humiliated by that. Friends, come, and we'll, we'll pray for you. We want to help you. We want to sit down and, and, and be accountable to one another. In fact, if you're not reading the Bible right now, there's a group of us, 12 or so, that are reading through the Bible. I'd love for you to join that group. Encourage you in your, your growth in that way. But all of it to say, you have to have a plan. How, how am I going to grow in my friendship with God? And if you don't have a plan, you'll, you'll drift away. And as we end and transition, I want to encourage you one last time to take God as your best friend rather than the world. See, the world will only desert you and fail you. But God will never leave you. He will be faithful to the end. Let's pray. As I pray, the men come forward for this morning's communion service. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to take our sin upon himself on the cross. And God, we recognize that this morning, this, this time, this meal together is for those that are believers, that are trusting in, in Christ for salvation because the whole purpose is remember what Christ has done for us. And we thank you, Jesus, for completing what was needed for us to be saved. And we gather together this morning remembering what you have done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.